lock and load. This is Steve Dace. The Steve Dace Show. And greetings. Happy Thursday. Welcome to the Steve Dace Show, live and on demand here on Blaze TV, radio and podcast. Steve Dace here with Todd Erzin, Aaron McIntyre, and all of you at 888-900-3393. That's 888-900-3393. Steve at stevedace.com is the email address. That's D-E-A-C-E. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Steve Dace Show over on Parlor at Steve Dace. And then check out our new YouTube channel as well, youtube.com slash Steve Dace. If you're a podcast listener, thank you very much. We appreciate you so much. Please make sure you hit that uh, that five-star review. Do one of those for us, wherever you podcast from. Hit that subscribe button for us as well. Thanks to the multitude of you that have done that for us already. We are off tomorrow, so to make up for it, we are doing our darndest to leave you for our final show of the week uh, to go out here with a bang. We have a lot going on here today. Uh, bottom of the hour, we're going to ask a simple question with a probably disappointing answer. Is the Pope a communist? And unfortunately, the asking of this question, Todd, see, hides his face in shame. The asking of this question is not a troll, is it? No. No. I mean, I know, I know. It's Reformation Anniversary Month. I know. That's coming up here at the end of the month. But this is not like a pre-Reformation Anniversary Protestant troll. It's a question, I think, that needs to be discussed after what the Pope himself has been saying, right? I know. And, and by the way, who, who books the guests on this show? I just want every one of our Catholic listeners and, and viewers to understand that when we have a guest on here in about 25 minutes to discuss this topic, or 35 minutes... Who does all the guest booking on this show? Aaron. No. Uh, me. Yeah. That would do. be me. Yeah. So you booked this guest, correct? I did. Okay. I right. just wanted to clarify that. All right. Next hour, we will go back into Theology Thursday and back into the pages of a nefarious plot as we continue with our book study, looking back on that book five years later and how prescient, unfortunately, it has turned out to be. Uh, and then at the bottom of next hour, Texas Senator Ted Cruz will be with us. He's got a new book out as well, and he'll talk to us about last night's vice presidential debate. So, I mean, we have a jam-packed show in store for you today. And one of the things that I get asked a lot these days, hey, how do we fight back against stuff? How do we do this? And one of the ways you can do it, I'm not big into cancel culture, Meaning that if, if, if I don't like your opinions, we just take your platform away. You know what was trending on Twitter last night after the VP debate is uh, your old buddy, and mine too, I've known him for years, Rick Santorum, was trending on Twitter last night because CNN viewers were questioning whether he should still be appearing on the network for daring to have a contrarian opinion to their leftist spewage, right? Um, I'm not big into cancel culture and deplatforming people. If they have an opinion, I mean, I think, listen, I think some opinions are worthy. Hey, I think, I think uh, child uh, abduction and human trafficking is good. Deplatform that person. Uh, we're not like, you know, never deplatformers. Some people clearly by their own views are vile and disgusting enough that they have disqualified themselves. Right. But it's not just because we disagree with you. However, one way that you can participate in that 
without having to perpetuate it uh, is to go and go and do business with companies that share your values. When that opportunity presents itself, take full advantage. Like with Patriot Mobile, for example, uh, they are the only conservative cell phone carrier out there. Uh, they never charge you hidden fees. Uh, they share your values. They won't spend your money that you give them on causes like Planned Parenthood that hate you and America. And switching is easy. You can keep your phone number, bring your own phone, buy a new one. And right now, when you join their family of freedom-loving Americans, you get a free activation plus a free gift with the offer code Steve. Got to like that when you go to PatriotMobile.com slash Steve. PatriotMobile.com slash Steve or call them at 972-PATRIOT. That's 972-PATRIOT. Here is Aaron's rundown of what happened while we were away. What happened while we were away brought to you by... Obviously, Mike Pence uh, is a former television commentator, does have a very calm demeanor, but I think a lot of people were noticing some mansplaining going on tonight. Vice President Mike Pence wiped the floor with Democratic VP nominee Kamala Harris at last night's debate. The American people have witnessed what is the greatest failure of any presidential administration in the history of our country. The reality is when you look at the Biden plan, it reads an awful lot like what President Trump and I and our task force have been doing every step of the way. I mean, quite frankly, when I look at their plan that talks about advancing testing, creating new PPE, developing a vaccine, um, it looks a little bit like plagiarism, which is something Joe Biden knows a little bit about. Whatever the vice president is claiming the administration has done, clearly it hasn't worked. But when you say what the American people have done over these last eight months hasn't worked, That's a great disservice to the sacrifices the American people have made. The reality, if I may may finish. If the Trump administration approves a vaccine before or after the election, should Americans take it and would you take it? If the public health professionals, if Dr. Fauci, if the doctors tell us that we should take it, I'll be the first in line to take it. Absolutely. But if Donald Trump tells us I should ta- that we should take it, I'm not taking it. The fact that you continue to undermine public confidence in a vaccine, exactly. if the vaccine emerges during the Trump administration, I think is, is unconscionable. And Senator, I, I just ask you, stop playing politics with people's lives. President Trump and I have a plan to, to improve health care and to protect pre-existing conditions for every American. But look, uh, Senator Harris, you're, you're entitled to your own opinion, but you're not entitled to your own facts. You yourself said on multiple occasions when you were running for president that you would ban fracking. Joe Biden looked at a supporter in the eye and pointed and said, I guarantee, I guarantee that we will abolish fossil fuels. He will not raise taxes on anybody who makes less than $400,000 he a year. He said he's going to repeal the Trump tax cuts. Uh, Mr. Vice President, I'm speaking. I'm speaking. Be important if you said the truth. Joe Biden said twice in the debate last week that he's going to repeal the Trump tax cuts. I couldn't be more proud to serve as vice president to a president who stands without apology for the sanctity of human life. I'm pro-life. I don't apologize for it. Senator Harris. People, Susan, are voting right now. They'd like to know if you and Joe Biden are going to pack the Supreme Court if you don't get your way in this nomination. Let's talk about that. You once Come again on. gave a non-answer. Joe Biden gave a non-answer. <laughs> Try to answer you the now. American people deserve a straight answer. Let's talk about packing the court then. Let's talk about Please. the pack. Yeah, I'm, I'm about to. That of the 50 people who President Trump appointed to the Court of Appeals for lifetime appointments, not one is black. 
This is what they've been doing. You want to talk about packing a court? Let's have that discussion. I just want the record to reflect she never answered the question. So I think the American people, maybe in the next debate, Joe Biden will answer the question. But I think the American people know the answer. Thank you. When you talk about accepting the outcome of the election, um, I I must tell you, uh, Senator, your party has spent the last three and a half years trying to overturn the results of the last election. It's amazing. When Joe Biden was vice president of the United States, the FBI actually spied on President Trump and my campaign. And now, reaction. Kathy Yan tweets, Pence needs to stop mansplaining, dominating, and gaslighting the women tonight. CNN's SE Cup tweets, Pence's mansplaining, interrupting, condescending, and general smarminess is at an 11 tonight. No wonder suburban women have left the Republican Party in droves. Dan Rathers tweets, I don't think VP Pence's mansplaining and over-talking is going to do a lot to narrow the gender gap, unless it's also turning off more men as well. In other important news, President Trump announced last night that all remaining American troops serving in Afghanistan should be withdrawn by Christmas. That would mark the end to the 19-year American presence in the country. President Trump also announced he's fast-tracking the approval of the COVID therapeutic Regeneron, which he took during his hospitalization, and making it available nationwide. For me, I walked in, I didn't feel good. A short 24 hours later, I was feeling great. I went to get out of the hospital. And that's what I want for everybody. I want everybody to be given the same treatment as your president, because I feel great. I feel like perfect. This morning, the nonpartisan debate committee announced that the next presidential debate will be taking place virtually. President Trump immediately reacted. No, I'm not going to waste my time on a virtual debate. That's not what debating is all about. You sit behind a computer and do a debate. It's ridiculous. And that's what happened while we were away. Aaron's montage brought to you by Home Title Lock. So what does COVID-19 have to do with losing your home? Well, it turns out it could be a lot. Cybercrime, according to the feds, has gone up 75% this year. And what can make that worse is online, is where a lot of our home titles are kept these days. Cyber criminals know this. They find your title, forge your signature on a quick claim deed, and then refile as the owner of your home. And then you're off before you know it. They are liquidating your equity, sticking you with the payments, stealing your cash. You may not even find out until something is stark and dire as a foreclosure notice shows up in the mail. Thankfully, Home Title Lock is here to prevent that from happening. They put a virtual barrier around your home's title and so that the instant they detect any tampering at all, they will mobilize to shut it down. But first things first, go to HomeTitleLock.com and register your address to see if you're already a victim at HomeTitleLock.com. And then while you're there, use the promo code RADIO for 30 free days of protection. 30 free days of protection for your most important assets your own home when you go to hometitlelock.com that's hometitlelock.com and use the promo code radio for the overtime today forgot to tell you guys this uh so now you're going to find out with everybody else for the overtime today we're going to be discussing the decision the president has made to not attend a virtual debate next week which i think is 100 percent right on and i will discuss why uh later today in the overtime but hey what if we don't have any more debates what if this gives the Biden campaign the out to do what I would be doing if I were them, which is never, ever risking my candidate, 
my dementia-riddled candidate with that level of exposure ever again between now and November the 3rd? What if that's what happens here? We'll, we'll discuss the impact that that could or could not have. On the rest of the race, today for our Blaze TV subscribers, we sit around, and, or stick around, and we don't sit around, we stick around and record the overtime after today's show, and then it gets posted later today at blazetv.com slash dace. That's where you can go to watch it if you're a Blaze TV subscriber, but also where you can go to get a discounted subscription to Blaze TV if you're not yet a subscriber at blazetv.com slash dace. All right, uh, had a ton of stuff already to say here on Blaze TV about the vice presidential debate last night. I've posted a ton about it as well. But for those of you that weren't up late last night or haven't been following on social media, I think it is only fair because I have made plain my thoughts and assessment of Vice President Pence here on this show going back about four or five years now since the travesty that was done to religious uh, liberty on his watch in his state of Indiana. And hey, man, I'm just a guy following the truth. The truth is he colossally mishandled that. The truth is his coronavirus task force is a disaster. It and it inflicted the quack tandem of Fauci Burks, um, you know, uh, and their bedazzled shields uh, uh, and and their mask uh, grade on the rest of the country, and they're still bedeviling us as we speak. But that performance last night. Now the it, the open was not strong. I mean, he he blew badly the coronavirus question at the beginning, which. I thought there was no way he could not. We had this conversation yesterday, Todd. It's his task force. He can't win. He can't win. Because the task force is bad. The lockdowns were bad. Um, he, he, he just, there's not a winning argument for Mike Pence here. And it showed. And then he let her get away, let Kamala get away with repeating the lie that Trump called COVID a hoax. It's, that's not true. It is true, even though she kept denying it last night, it is true that her and Biden have talked about banning fracking um, and fossil fuels. And I have those videos in my Twitter feed and go watch them for yourselves right now at Steve Day Show and watch those videos for yourselves. Okay, that's true. But Trump has never called COVID a hoax. That's a lie. All right. But he let her get away with it. And I'm rolling my eyes and I'm like, same as it ever was. And then about the third question in, I think it was when the when it turned to the economy and he just wrecked her. And then from there, that point on, that was as dominant of a debate performance I have ever seen from a Republican on a national stage. I mean, that was the varsity versus the JV. He just outclassed her. I mean, at the very end, when they got to the racialist agenda, this should have been right in her wheelhouse. He ripped off her arm and beat her with it on her own issue at the very end of the debate. He absolutely crushed her. And you can tell that by the fact that their media's only talking point was a word no one knew what it meant like three years ago, mansplaining. That is a, that, that tells and, you and that a, they lost. And a fly okay? on his head. Yeah, that tells you that they lost. They had nothing else to talk about. And what you saw last night is why Kamala Harris got laughed out of her own primary. And I know you've heard rumors that there was a temporary loss of sanity and reason on this program when somebody whose name should not be mentioned, uh, claimed that they thought Kamala Harris, after she called Joe Biden a racist, might be the Democrats' strongest candidate. That person's been flogged, not confirming that that take ever occurred. We're still not, we're not ever confirming whether that take happened. Um, We don't erase any segments past shows 
except for that segment. Uh, we don't, we, but we don't, you know, you get, we're not confirming that that ever occurred. But just in case it did, that the person who aired that opinion on this program, maybe, was, was, was punished severely for it. Just in case. Just in case it happened. But as for the rest of Kamala Harris's run as a presidential candidate, there's a reason she got laughed out of the primary two months before the Iowa caucuses voted. I said when she was nominated, I thought it was a terrible choice. Joe Biden was better with black voters in their own primary than she was. She was not a serious candidate. She got her pants pulled down by uh, Tulsi Gabbard. Um, she got depanted and, and, and earlier this year by her, a candidate that we like more than the Democrats like, and she's one of them. Um, she, they're going to win California, man, just by showing up by 30 points. She adds nothing. And this year, maybe more than ever before, maybe, no, not maybe, definitely more than ever before. The running mates matter. We've got two candidates who, if they, whoever wins is going to leave uh, the White House, if it's one term or two, if it's Biden, is the oldest president we've ever had. And one of them's got dementia and the other guy just got out of the hospital with COVID, okay? So this matters more than it ever has before. And the entire narrative of the Biden campaign is where the soft landing, where you, where you can go, you, you can feel safe with us. We're not these leftists like the other Democrats. We beat them. You know, you suburban women that don't like the mean tweets in your cul-de-sacs, you can vote for us. We're the safe, we're the safe space. She needed to go in there last night and reassure people she could be president in a month or two if she needed to be. She's not. She did not do that. She got destroyed. I mean, I woke up this morning and I was still reflecting upon the pounding that she took last night. So, Mike Pence, I think, did I do that right? Jesse Kelly, did I do that right? Okay. Um, my Dude, the question last night on the hurricanes, dumbest ass question in the history of debates in this country. The hurricanes are wetter, guys. They're wetter. The hurricanes are aroused now. Are the hurricanes ovulating? Let's call the next hurricane Cardi B. The hurricanes are wetter. Are you serious? And she wrote that question out. Susan Page wrote that question out and thought, I'm going to say this in front of 30 million people. I'm going to do this on purpose. Todd, your thoughts. As you know, I missed the debate. It was my daughter's birthday. And I, the first thing before bed, I pull up my phone and I see a tweet that you put out there. I'm like, what the heck did I just miss? A curb stomp. An absolute curb stomping. And there's no question Mike Pence has, if Trump wins, has substantially raised his profile so, and stakes for 2024. No question. After so it does night. seem, based on what I saw, if this wasn't going to go virtual, if they did have another debate, I was right that this this is the template, right? I would think. Isn't, yeah. I would think. Now, whether okay. Trump can do what he did, Pence did for an now, hour and a half. different people. They are, but... But Trump could be the guy that was in that video and not the guy that we saw last week. You know what I'm saying? Yes, that's he my could point. At least yes, be yeah. the happy warrior. Yeah, agreed. So, I spent some more time this week, and I want, I want to share some things with you guys, because I spent, I spent some more time this week going through the polls, and... I want to share some data with you about the latest stuff that is out there because the polls, they just don't make any sense. All right. Let's start with the big picture. 
So the big picture, if, if you take the entire narrative of the public polling, the big picture is that Joe Biden is a stronger candidate at this stage of the election than Barack Obama was in 2008 when he would go on and get the biggest Democrat presidential win since LBJ in 1964. Right now they're saying Joe Biden is in a stronger position than that. They're saying that Donald Trump is an even weaker incumbent at this stage than George Herbert Walker Bush was in 1992. That's that's the big picture narrative you have to buy or to accept the conclusions of the public polling. So let's go to some specifics next. All right, let's go to Rasmussen. Uh, this was the most accurate national poll in 2016. And its latest national poll says that Joe Biden is going to outperform, look at this now, that Joe Biden is going to outperform FDR's final reelect in 1944 when he was in the midst of winning World War II after D-Day. The Nazis are in retreat. After MacArthur, I shall return to the Philippines. After all of that, and arguably the most popular president since George Washington, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, Rasmussen is claiming that Joe Biden is going to outperform FDR's final reelect campaign in the middle of World War II in the fall of 1944. Next, let's get specific. Let's go to this Quinnipiac poll. Now, Quinnipiac is rated a B-plus pollster by 538. Except their recent track record in the state of Florida, not so much. Here was their tweet right before the 2018 midterms. And you can see they have Andrew Gillum, basehead, Andrew Gillum up seven points in the governor's race against Ron DeSantis. Gentlemen, is Andrew Gillum the governor of Florida today? No. Who would be? Somebody who doesn't have a crack whore problem? Apparently, yes. Uh, and is wasn't trailing by seven points Seven points, guys. That's like twice the margin for error, okay? Seven points. In the final Quinnipiac poll, Ron DeSantis is governor of Florida today. And yet somehow they're a B-plus pollster at 538. So it's almost impossible for a Republican to win the White House without Florida. Here's what Quinnipiac, with the backdrop of what they said in the last election, here's what Quinnipiac says about the 2020 presidential election in Florida. Take a look at this from Quinnipiac. All right. The average margin of victory in Florida in the last seven presidential elections is two and a half points. Well, it's 2.491. I just rounded it up. Okay. That's the average margin of victory in Florida is two and a half points in the last seven elections. Quinnipiac's latest Florida poll says that Joe Biden is going to outperform that average by 400%. 400%, guys. 400%. Okay, well, based on what we saw from Quinnipiac in 2018, that could only mean a 10-point Trump win in the state. How about Pennsylvania? Let's move next there. All right. Now, Trump became the first Republican in almost 30 years to capture Pennsylvania. It was the white whale for Republican presidential candidates for decades, trying to crack that nut, figure it out. All right. Now, Monmouth is an A-plus rated pollster at 538, pollster I respect, currently has Biden leading the state by 12 points. However, if that were to happen, it would mean that Joe Biden would outperform Barack Obama and his turnout in that historic win that he had in 2008. And Obama, again, has the biggest Democratic Party presidential victory since LBJ in 1964. And Monmouth is claiming 
that Joe Biden's going to outperform that in the state of Pennsylvania. All right. In other words, Monmouth is claiming that if the election were held today, Trump would suffer a massive 13 point negative swing in Pennsylvania. Yet, how do you square that with these numbers? Since 2016, Democrats have lost 41,294 voters in the state of Pennsylvania, while Republicans have gained 158,445. So how is Joe Biden, Joe Biden going to win by 11 points, given those voter registration numbers? Let me put those in a further context for you. Trump is president today because he won the three decisive states of 2016 by a grand total of 78,000 votes. However, in Pennsylvania alone, Republicans have seen a voter registration surge that is more than 150% greater than that from just the Keystone state. So Trump is going to have substantially more Republican voters in Pennsylvania than he had in 2016. But then he's going to do substantially worse in 2020? Okay, if you say so. Finally, let's go back to Rasmussen, where this all began. All right, now Rasmussen, again, that was the most accurate poll in 2016. It currently has Joe Biden plus 12, which would be the largest popular vote win by a Democratic presidential candidate against a Republican in almost 100 years, FDR over Herbert Hoover. And the main reason why, according to Rasmussen, is that Trump is historically unpopular with Republicans. The latest Rasmussen poll that has Biden plus 12 has Trump only getting 76% of the Republican vote. Trump got 88% of Republicans in the 2016 election. His average approval rating, his entire presidency with Republicans, the average has been 87%. And yet, with the Democratic Party, the furthest left it's ever been, Rasmussen is claiming that Trump is going to lose 12 points of Republican support from the last election, which is pretty much his entire margin of defeat in their poll. To put that in a historical context, the worst a Republican has done in the last seven presidential elections with Republican voters, George Herbert Walker Bush got 73% in 1992, and that was with a Perot on the ballot siphoning off his own support, something Trump doesn't have. Guys, Trump may lose on November the 3rd. I promise you this. He ain't getting just 76% of the Republican vote. It's just not happening. It's not like monkeys aren't going to fly to my butt. Trump's not only getting 76% of the Republican vote. That's just not going to happen. Now, to me, none of this makes any sense. The math doesn't add up. The assumptions are questionable at best. And if you study the methodologies of these polls, you know, it reminds me of when I was studying the methodology of the Imperial College survey. And it just doesn't add up. And everyone told me at the time I was nuts at first, uh, but I turned out to be right about every one of my challenges. Because when you're doing a model, the logic, the assumptions, and then the conclusion have to be symmetrical. They have to line up, not be asymmetric, symmetrical. A plus B must equal C. Otherwise, the model isn't sound. And it wasn't with Imperial College. And the models that are being shown to you in these polls, they're not sound as well. And I leave you with this point. If you were to consider every other metric that matters when looking at an election environment, for example, look at the voter registration numbers, and it's not just in Pennsylvania. This is going on across the country. If you look at the things like NBA rankings, our ratings, television ratings, tanking. 
over wokeness. And that's the most liberal fan base of, in American team sports, probably other than soccer. And even they don't want to watch this stuff. Look at a falling unemployment rate. Look at all of those metrics. If you never looked at a single poll and you just looked at every other metric that told you what was going on in an election campaign, you would think Trump is cruising to re-election. The only thing that says differently are the polls. Draw your own conclusion from there. Joe Biden may win on November the 3rd. I don't know. But I can tell you I know this. The methodologies in the internals in these polls are at best wrong and flawed. At worst, Imperial College. Gentlemen, your thoughts. I think these polls are like the the hospital pictures coming out of Italy. Oh yeah, early burning bodies in the back. Yeah, that they have. There's now. I'm not talking about these are different things in terms of motivations, perhaps. But ultimately, what they're accomplishing, they're they're short circuiting people's ability to do their homework. All you've done, just like you did early on in coronavirus, you, you've just done the homework. This isn't, it's not wish casting. I mean, honestly, you're almost, you're almost like begging for the, if, if there's a crushing loss, let's just get it out in the open. Mm-hmm. It, I, I absolutely agree. And I've been saying it for weeks. Uh, what you just said, your sentiment about this looks like a Trump win. This feels like a Trump win. Everything other than the polls looks like it. And again, I ain't any great fan of Trump. I don't know what to tell you. But this is some weird voodoo going on. Fox News has a new poll out. Remember, we took apart their last one. Their new one shows Biden's lead surging while people's expectations that Trump is going to win surging at the exact same time. Guys, that's just not how this works. Okay? That's just not how it works. More in a moment. Hey, have you noticed your hair isn't looking quite as full as it used to? Yeah, losing your hair is no fun. So let's talk about options. You know, one option is go see your doctor uh, for a hair loss treatment prescription, then visit the pharmacy. Try not to go broke as you try not to go bald. Or you can instead try Keeps from the comfort of your own home where you're going to get the same doctor-recommended FDA-approved hair loss treatment, but Keeps offers the generic versions. And so right away, you're going to save about half the cost. But there's more. You're going to love the convenience of Keeps. It's all online. You just answer a few questions, snap a few pics of your hair, and then a licensed doctor reviews your info and recommends the right hair loss treatment for you. And then it's shipped discreetly and directly to your door. And we can even offer one more incentive. How about half off? Half off your first order when you go to keeps.com slash grow. So you're already saving a chunk off the top with the generic versions. Another 50% discount on your very first order at keeps.com. K-E-E-P-S. That's keeps.com slash grow. Again, that's keeps.com slash grow. Interesting, if not disappointing, if not, frankly, predictable. Comments recently uh, from the Pope on capitalism saying, hey, what's going on with COVID-19 and the pandemic is indicative of the failure of market-based capitalism. And remember, when, when he was anointed, we warned you, we had these conversations at the time, that he comes from a region of the world, particularly within Latin America, where liberation theology, which is a nice way of saying Marxism, <laughs> is fused with Christianity. 
All right. And there's been hints of this, right, Todd? There's been hints of this throughout his tenure as Pope so far, right? There's even been, you're being okay. kind. There's I'm, been I'm, more I'm trying than to hints. be fair. I'm trying not to have my evangelical bias slant the conversation, okay? But this is the first time I think he's been this open and direct in connecting the dots for us, right? Yeah. So let's have a conversation about that and ask the ask the, a difficult question. Is arguably the most visible Christian leader in the world a Marxist? Henry Kasner is here with us, uh, and he has written about uh, Christianity and capitalism at the Christian Post and other places. He's lived this out in his own life. We want to welcome him to the program today. Henry, how are you? Steve, I'm doing great. Thank you very much for having me on. So your thoughts, first and foremost, about the question we just asked. Is the Pope a Marxist? <laughs> that's that's a great question. You know, I'd, Steve, I'd, I'd like to think that I'm an expert in faith-driven entrepreneurship and faith-driven investing. I don't know as much as I probably need to know about Catholic theology. Uh, and yet I would join you in, in uh, saying that some of the headlines that I read it make me concerned about um, uh, his uh, offering up uh, something that looks akin to socialism as the answer for it uh, ails our society. And I think that something completely different ails our society. And I'd love to see the Pope talk more about that. What's the something different? Well, something different is that uh, that uh, somewhere along the way, a number of people have come to understand or believe that the government is the, the answer for our problems. And, and I fundamentally am opposed to that. I think ultimately we are the answer to the problems. I think that, um, I, as I said before, I care deeply about faith-driven entrepreneurship. And there's some great examples in history where things were just going completely off the rails. I think back to the early 1800s England when uh, there wasn't any trust in government. There was just awful uh, deplorable factory conditions. Uh, just, it was just a bad life. But a bunch of people driven by their faith got together and said, we're going to fix this. We're fixing this because we know that the God that we worship uh, isn't pleased with what's going on. And, and we feel that uh, that he would empower us to get out there and make some significant changes. And out of that, of course, came uh, the Clapham Circle and this group that was able to end just deplorable conditions in factories and were able to really make a lot of great reforms uh, and ultimately, of course, came up with the abolition of the slave movement. But it's a bunch of people motivated by their faith. And what I'd like to see the Pope do is say, uh, there's an opportunity for us to get down on our knees and and ask God what he sees that is broken in the world and how we as individuals and as the church, because he represents a very large section of the church, of course, how we as individuals might solve for that and how we might love our neighbor rather than suggesting that the government do it. And um, gosh, when we legislate our way, uh, our ability to love our neighbor to the government, I think that our society is in big trouble. It's very, very well said. I, I think Listen, some ideologies and philosophies are superior to others, right? History has, has proven that to us. But what history has also proven to us is that ideologies and philosophies that believe ultimately salvation or the answer to societal ills is found in that which consolidates government power always lead to more tyranny. 
Because what they ignore is what, what caused the oppression in the first place. What caused the inequality in the first place. Now, in this case, we're dealing with a plague. We didn't cause this. Okay. In fact, we wanted to get into a deeply theological conversation about it. The scriptures are pretty, make it plain. And on lots of occasions, God causes plagues. Not saying he caused this one. I'm just saying that we didn't cause this one. This is a natural occurrence. But typically, the oppression in the world is, is because of, is a manifestation of human sin, right? And so when you end up empowering other humans, to have control over human beings in order to cast out oppression, we run into this thing where Beelzebub can't cast out Beelzebub. Because aren't those people that you're empowering and giving these, uh, the, the, the chancellor you're voting emergency powers here, um, is he sinless? He's without sin? Mm-hmm. Has he evolved to a higher plane here where he's more enlightened and won't be when you hand him all your guns and you hand him all your money, he won't be tempted to then point those guns at you or redistribute it to, to his causes and his friends instead. This is what we've seen in every society that has char- tried it, uh, tried this collectivization, socialism, Marxism, whatever you want to call it, is that ultimately it just it further imbues the, the, the sinfulness we have rather than incentivizes against it. And when you talk about individuals rising above their own sinful state motivated by god to that they ultimately believe they're accountable to that it's the recognition of our sin and our willingness to confront it that's what ends oppression on this earth not believing that there's others among us who aren't capable of such oppression that always just leads to more of it henry Mm-hmm. Well, I think that you you make some you make some great points there. I think that getting back to the Pope and what he said, I'm just I'm I'm frustrated and discouraged by the fact that he didn't uh, address the personal sin rather than what he's calling societal sin. I think that again, there's an opportunity for us to really um, look at uh, the opportunities that we've been given and and just you know turn us back to God. So this is what the Pope can ideally do. He can say, listen, there's an opportunity. There's there's some really big challenges that are going on in society right now. So we as Christ followers need to do like what they what what the Bible talks about in Second Chronicles seven fourteen. We need to get down on our knees and we need to pray for the healing of the land. Then we need to turn to God and we need to ask God, what do you want from us? What is it that we might do during this time of strife and all sorts of challenges? And so Micah 6, 8, of course, talks about the fact that we're to act justly and we're to love mercy and we're to walk humbly with our God. A little further than that, of course, you know, you know, I'm a, I'm a business guy, right? So if you put a gun to my head, I could probably remember nine of the Ten Commandments. But it makes it really easy when we got these two things, right? All the law and the prophets are summed up in love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. When we legislate our way, our ability to love our neighbor and say, no, I, actually, I'll have the government do that, we're in big trouble. Because it keeps a, an opportunity from us away from being able to love our neighbor. And then when the person who actually is poor, I know all throughout the Bible, it cares very much about the poor, of course. But then the poor has some sort of a salaried government worker that's supplying aid. And it can't be done in the same loving way that the creators of the wealth might do it. And I think that's really important. I've got a book on my bookshelf by Marvin Olasky called The Tragedy of American Compassion. And he chronicles the history of social welfare in in the country. And I think that one of the big takeaways for me in that is that we really got it right in the early days of our country when there wasn't a social welfare state, when we had to love the poor. If somebody was homeless, if we didn't bring them into our homes, that person would die. So we brought them into our homes. But Mercy, limited mercy. That person needed to work and help the household. 
And that was something that was really important because then we had this pure play on being able to love our neighbor. Society gets in trouble when we go ahead and have a government do that instead. We miss the richness of being involved in the lives of other people as givers. And then the recipient misses the love that might happen. And, and it's not the way that God designed it, I think. Final thing I want to ask you about. You use the term here, faith-driven entrepreneurship. Yeah. Give us kind of a, a low-down definition of that. And if there's anybody in this audience that you think uh, that, that could be listening or watching right now, you know, um, that, that has the resources or the wherewithal uh, to, to uh, deploy and, and engage in what you're about to define, encourage them with how they could get started. Steve, thanks for asking. So uh, we care deeply about faith-driven entrepreneurship. Faith-driven entrepreneur, and you can find it at faithdrivenentrepreneur.org, is about equipping and empowering faith-driven entrepreneurs to get out there and to find problems and to solve them, to do it in community, to come to know God more fully as they do it, and then to really focus on excellence. Uh, we care deeply about ministry. Indeed, we care deeply about excellence. We care about stewardship versus ownership, and it's a community of people to get together around a podcast and a blog and, and conferences. And then we also have something called Faith Driven Investor. Faith Driven Investor is a ministry to those that are motivated by their faith who want to participate in the stories that faith driven entrepreneurs are doing all around the world. You see, Steve, traditionally Christians have come to understand that, you know, I'm going to make as much money as I can over here in my investments. And then to the degree that I understand the biblical message of generosity, I'll give it away all over here. Hmm. But I think what we've missed is the church is understanding that the very process of putting our investment capital to work might accomplish those same ministry goals that we had with our giving. So what does it look like where we say, okay, we know the government's not the solution to what's going on. But we, driven by our faith, are going to be motivated to come in and solve problems, lean into opportunities in the marketplace. We're creating the image of this incredibly entrepreneurial, innovative guy who works six out of seven days and whose work continues to this day. We're creating his image. Let's get out there and solve for problems. Let's also create cultures of generosity within these companies that we start. And so we can love our neighbor so that uh, the government doesn't feel like they need to go ahead and do it as much. Give that website out one more time, brother. We have faithdrivenentrepreneur.org and faithdriveninvestor.org. Thank you. You got it. Take care, man. God bless you. Good stuff. You too, Steve. You as well. Thank you. All right. So, Todd, as the resident Catholic, because that's the game we play in America, if you represent a group, you must speak for them all. Todd, speak for all 1 billion Catholics in the world. Go now. Piece of cake. Uh, <laughs> I, I got this. I am Iron Man. <laughs> Uh, listen, it, the, the Pope gets in all of this. He, he's not a very good communicator when it comes to these big systemic things. Uh, and so I, I just, if he, but when he talks at the personal level, he's pretty good. Well, that book, I've cited Marvin Olansky's, a non-Catholic, uh, The Tragedy of American Compassion on this show. Yeah, I know you Many, yeah. many times. He's the publisher of World Magazine, by the way, one of the preeminent yeah. think magazines in evangelicalism. And that yeah. is not an egg-headed read. It talks in narratives, just like he said. I remember vividly talking about, yeah, you're down on your luck, you come into my home, but you go up out and you chop all the wood that helps make our meals here and things like that. And that, th that level of human-on-human -human interaction keeps from the the coldness of systems taking over. Yeah, yeah. And the simple fact of the matter is capitalism 
inherently allows for those human on human systems to work organically as God intended far better and far more efficiently than anything socialism has to offer, even on its best day, whatever that is. I think one of the problems we have is that we have, we, we speak with hushed tones and in hallowed references to capitalism and, and have blown it way out of proportion. Correct. Capitalism doesn't lift people out of sin. Capitalism is effective because it recognizes we're all sinful. Which you've That's said the many times before. Okay, yes. there, it's not a salvationary construct. It is in rec- cal- capitalism works because it recognizes the reality of the human condition that we need to be incentivized in most cases to do the right thing. We need to be incentivized to not be lazy. We need to be incentivized to take our God-given talents and do something with them other than play video games. And that okay. truth is good enough on its own. You don't need to deify it. Yep. It's like Churchill and democracy. It's the worst form of government except, except for, for all the, the rest others. of right. them. Yes. That's exactly right. Aaron? Yeah, and just going back further uh, with this with this line of thinking as well, and something I, I picked up on uh, too, is, is if there were not a market for the government taking par- care, having to take having to take care of the poor and the needy and the sick, if there was an absence of a market for that, we wouldn't even be having this conversation right now. But why is there? Why is there a market for that? Well, it's fundamentally, this is when we're talking about economics, uh, Todd likes to remind us, econ, the family, that's what we're talking about. So we can't even, we, we can't even talk about the virtues of capitalism, if you will, uh, what, what virtues there are without going all the way back to the, the nucleus of, uh, of this conversation, which is the breakdown of the family and by extension, the breakdown of manhood as well. And so these conversations, because when, when a man is married and has kids, more people depended on him, uh, is he more or less likely to sit around exactly and play video games yep. all, all day? Yeah. When uh, when when a wife when a woman has kids but also has a husband is she going to be more or less likely to need government assistance? Yep. So this all these conversations go back to that nucleus, which That's is exactly right. the family. So yep. that can't be lost in this conversation. You, as well. you absolutely nailed it. Interesting question. I just got back to the polling for a second. This is from Nancy Caracalus in Irvine, California. She says the analysis I just saw you do of these polls is terrifying. Why would respected polling companies put their reputations on the line like this? I don't know the answer to that. Why did Imperial College do it? Why did the University of Washington do it with the IHME model? When was the last time you heard that term? For about two months in this country, IHME ran your freaking life. IHME determined whether your state was open or not, whether your business was essential or not, whether your kid went to school or not, whether you went outside or not. Remember that? Mm-hmm. Doesn't it seem like that was 20 years ago now? Mm-hmm. It was only a few months ago. We, we, Debbie Burke surrendered this country to the IHME model after we extended the 15 days to flatten the curve to 30 days to slow the spread. IHME became Skynet, ran America. IHME was on Fox News every day let alone all the other networks, spewing its nonsense. I don't know the answer to that question. And again, Biden might win on November 3rd. I don't know. I just know these models are bad. That, I'm not claiming that, that Trump is going to win the election. I'm claiming the models are bad. Okay? The models are bad. Of that, I am certain. Hour two is next.
All right, we are back with Hour 2, live and on demand here on Blaze TV, radio, and podcast. Steve at stevedace.com. That's how you can email the show to let us know what you think about what we think, D-E-A-C-E. Like us on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter at Steve Dace Show. Over on Parlor at Steve Dace, and check out our new YouTube channel uh, as well. Uh, that is youtube.com slash Steve Dace. Hey, um, we do lots of cool things for our dogs, right? We take them walking. Some of you even take them running. Uh, We play with them, buy them, chew toys, feed them. You know what we really need to do, though, too? Make sure they have the right nutrients. Because a lot of the food we're feeding them these days, that stuff is dead as a doornail. As soon as it leaves the factory, sterilized so it can have a long shelf life, just like a lot of the food that we eat today. That's why we're taking so many supplements these days. And that's where Rough Greens comes in. It's a supplement for your pet. Isn't a dog food. It's a supplement that you sprinkle on the food your dog already loves that apparently makes it tasty even better. They're going to love it even more if my dog Cap is any indication. But it's got all the good stuff that's missing from the food they already are eating. The vitamins, nutrients, omega oils, antioxidants, pre, probiotics. And right now, you can get the Rough Greens Jumpstart Bag today for just $14.95. And start the process of getting to see if your dog doesn't seem to be healthier and happier in 14 days or less. When you go to roughgreens.com slash blaze, R-U-F-F is how it is spelled, for roughgreens.com slash blaze. Again, that's roughgreens.com slash blaze. I want to make a couple, we're going to get to Theology Thursday here in a moment, but I want to make a couple more points because I really feel on the the polling, because I really feel like this is the early days of COVID modeling skepticism all over again, and I want to, And if I'm going to go out on a limb, I want to make sure I'm fine defending what I'm actually saying, but I want to make sure I'm not defending what I'm not saying. Okay? All right? Yeah. I'm not saying that the polls are wrong and Donald Trump is going to win. I am saying the modeling within these polls are wrong and their data is bad. That's what I'm saying. When I, when I said earlier that if I looked at every other metric an election environment is determined by, I mean, I've, I, our state's been pretty much open. We've had a couple dips here or there, but our state's pretty much been open since about the middle of May everywhere, all 99 counties, right? I went and filled up for gas still yesterday at Costco, man, for a buck seventy-five. You're all over the state with your girls, right? Yeah. Our interstates, are, are they bare? No. Pe- they're full. Yes. I mean, mo- most of Iowa's kind of back to normal. You know, I mean, we're not going to sell out Kinnick Stadium or Jack Trice, although I'm going up there this Saturday with 15,000 people to watch Iowa State play. But our state is as open and normal. That's why we've been hosting like all these high school sporting tournaments and events all from all over the country here. Our state is as open and normal as anywhere else. And we have like some counties and cities have a mask mandate, but we don't have any kind of state action on that. Most of our districts are back in school. We had 300 boys and girls baseball and softball teams play the first high school sports in America back in, in June and July, remember? All right? So most, most of our state is open. And when you go around and, and see where things are at with our state and you look at the environment... You just don't, you don't, if you, if you went around our state, you would not sense that this was a place Joe Biden was going to win by five points. Like one of the polls just said last week, 
If you never looked at a poll, so I mean, even in a state that's as open as our state, I can still get gas for $1.74. Gas is cheap. Unemployment's going down. We're now at the the level of unemployment that Obama got reelected on in 2012, and he didn't have a COVID depression for a quarter. You're the first one that made this point. I'll give you credit again. I mean, it's like with every ensuing game, the NBA sets new ratings records for worst NBA finals ratings ever. Ever. And and there's some other sports on TV, not during the weeknights, and Major League Baseball is playing, but that's it. There aren't any new shows. This would like this these last couple weeks would be the weeks that all the new shows are premiering or the new seasons are premiering. We don't have any of that because all these productions were halted. They're they're the only primetime game on, except for baseball. They're the only new primetime programming on until we get to the weekends during the week. And it's tanking. And they got LeBron James. Better than Jordan, apparently. He's not, but that's the word. With the Lakers. Even their own audience is like, I'm, I'm just tired of this stuff. I mean, if this message would, was resonating, wouldn't the NBA's ratings be doing better? Their commissioner's already on record saying, yeah, we're getting rid of this crap next season. We're not doing it. Again, they're the most progressive left-wing sports league we have. They have the most left-wing fan base of any sports league we have. And even they're like, yeah, we, we're not doing this next year. Show me anywhere... Forget there's the polls. Anywhere else in America, show me where the the ideological agenda that Joe Biden and Kamala Harris are running on has momentum. Like 10 years ago, or, or, or 12 years ago in 2008, people believed in Obamacare. They thought it was time. Like Obama was running openly on it. Tell me where, look and look at the way they're campaigning. Hey, no, we didn't say we're going to ban fracking. I No comment on stacking the court. We're, we're going to cut taxes, except uh, or we're going to raise taxes, but not to anybody over. Do you remember when Democrats called people who made $250,000 a year rich? That was like 10 minutes ago. Last night, Kamala Harris said, hey, if you make under 400 grand a year, we're not cutting your taxes. That means pretty much, or we're not raising your taxes, I should say. That means pretty much no one's getting a tax raise, guys. Because 98% of Americans make less than $400,000 a year, okay? So they're running on, we're not going to raise taxes after all, we're not fracking, and I have no comment on stack. Do, do they sound to you like people on offense on their issues? Does that, does that sound like they're deflecting their own positions, right? Yes. Does that sound like they're, they're, they, they think that this is their environment, they're all in on this? Does it sound like that to you? No. No. There's only one place that says differently from everything else that we that we traditionally go by with elections. And it's these polls. If I came from another planet and never looked at another and never knew what a poll was and just looked at the environment, I think Trump was going to win. And then you throw in I mean, here's your sixth data point. The other guy's got dementia. Let's throw that one in. It doesn't make any sense except for the polling. And to prove my point, I want to go back to the Fox News poll, the new one that shows Biden widening his lead. In that same poll that shows the gap between Biden and Trump has grown, the gap between who people think is going to win has grown too. 
when people are asked, hey, who do you think your neighbor is going to vote for? The gap between Biden and Trump is growing, but in Trump's direction. You know what that tells me? Other people are looking at the environment, too. And they're saying, I don't know. Kind of feels like the kind of environment that Trump would win in. See what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah. Guys, I just got an email from Rasmussen telling me in their polling, Kamala Harris came out as more presidential than Mike Pence last night. Now, forget my analysis. Forget your own partisan leanings. If Kamala Harris came out last night more presidential, would every member of the left-wing press spent their night last night talking about a fly and mansplaining? You want to know what they sound like when the Republican has a bad debate performance? Go look at what they said last Tuesday night. That's what it sounds like. Because he did. He had a bad debate performance. Were they saying any of those things last night? No. No. No, they were diverting to their talking point of mansplaining and white man bad. And yet Rasmussen, you know, for years I'm like, I don't really think these guys are that good. We didn't even talk, we didn't even we wouldn't even acknowledge them on the show, right? Right. And now everybody's like, we're the most accurate in 2016. I went and looked it up. I'm like, yeah, you're right. So I'm starting to pay attention to them now. And like every time I pay more and more attention, I'm like, what are you? Now there's an, there's another, like you were just telling me about the YouGov poll, right, Aaron? So YouGov is a British polling firm. Yeah. They're, they're all online. Mm-hmm. If I want to make sure I, I have the, in, the YouGov has Trump winning independence by, by five, five points. points. And this is registered voters, by the way. Okay. Yeah. All right, so Trump winning independence by five points. Has three points more turnout within his own party yep. than Joe Biden does. But still losing by eight points? Eight points. That cannot happen. It cannot happen that there's, first of all, there won't be plus three Republican turnout. Like, like and That like never happens in a presidential election, number one. Okay? If that happens, Trump's winning like 40 states. Okay? That's not even happening. Okay, it's not even that they're going to get plus three Republican turnout, but there's going to be plus three Republican turnout and then he's going to win independence by five points, but he's going to lose by eight. Folks. No, 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 no. With every certainty I've ever expressed on this show about anything I've taken a stance on that was contrarian, that cannot occur. It cannot occur that there's three more Republican turnout and Trump wins independence by the same margin he won in the last time, but then loses by eight points. That cannot occur. It cannot occur. Trump may lose by eight points. I don't think even that will happen, but it won't be by this methodology. You see what I'm trying to say? Completely. I'm talking now not about the outcome on November the 3rd. I already gave you my analysis on that. I think the electorate is so balkanized that whatever topics are trending literally 12 hours before we vote are going to determine who's on offense and who wins. I just had that conversation, right? Yes. And that is my analysis. On any given day, I may have it. Like, t- like Friday, I thought Trump was losing 35 states. Today, I think it's a toss-up. Tomorrow, I might have a different answer, depending on what news comes out in the next 24 hours. I think it's that fluid. Or combustible, maybe, is a better word. That's a separate, separate that. I'm strictly talking about the models here. The ground is bad. Bad. The models are bad. That's that's not how this works. And the fact that no one has come forward, I've been saying this for how long now? 
And I'm not an, I'm not a big star, but am I a non-public figure? No. If if you could discredit what I'm saying, don't you think somebody would have done it? No one yet has lobbied to me a single, even really technical, alternative definition of what I'm pointing out. Not, I've got nothing. Believe me, come to me if I'm wrong. Show me where I'm wrong. But I'm going to need more than orange man bad. I'm talking about the models. Simply the models were being sold here. They're jalopies. Not Alexis. All right, let's get to Theology Thursday. Uh, brought to you by Scoremaster. You know, the average American has about 100 points out there that they can add to their credit score, but no idea how to acquire them. Well, Scoremaster is the new credit super science that helps to super boost your credit score. And we're not talking just a few points. The average Scoremaster user can raise their credit score 61 points in 20 days or less. How? How? Well, knowledge is power. And, and they empower you with the knowledge. How do you have the score you have? What's holding you back? But then they take it a step further. What then can you do about it to get the score that you want? Because improving your score 50 to 100 points from the 500s to the 600s and 600s to the 700s and beyond makes a huge difference. And not only whether you, get, you can get approval, but then what kind of offer, what kind of interest rate are you offered when it comes to a home loan, a car loan, a business loan? All right. So you can enroll in minutes, see how many plus points ScoreMaster can add to your credit score when you visit scoremaster.com slash Steve. That's scoremaster.com slash Steve. Bottom of the hour. Texas Senator Ted Cruz is going to join us to talk about his new book. But now we go to Theology Thursday first to talk about one of mine, A Nefarious Plot. And that's a good time to remind you the prequel, or I'm sorry, the sequel to A Nefarious Plot, A Nefarious Carol. It is released on December the 15th. And in this book, the devil decides since Nefarious won round one, he is coming out of hiding to win the second and decisive round. All right. If you want to read A Nefarious Carol, pre-order your copy today at Amazon.com. It releases on December the 15th, just in time for Christmas. So you have a Christmas gift to somebody to give somebody that you care about. But then I have a Christmas gift to give to a few somebodies I care about. My kids get a better Christmas because you bought the book. All right. So gentlemen, this week we're going to look at the introduction to A Nefarious Plot. And I told the story of how the book came to be last week. When I got back from doing Mark Levin's show that night, I sat down and just began writing the introduction. And that introduction was written in a Washington, D.C. hotel room uh, in, I think, April or May of 2014. And it ended up being about 95 or more percent or more of what was ultimately published when the book came out in 2016. So the floor is now yours as we look back on the introduction to a nefarious plot and points you want to raise and questions you'd like answered. Well, know thy enemy, right? Yeah. And along those lines, what are you, your three points of what um, philo philosophical thinking and know what you believe about? Three what, points of critical thinking. Critical thinking. Yeah. Three um, dimensions. Know why you dimensions. believe what you believe, know why other people believe what they believe, and then know why other people believe what they believe about what you believe. Well, yeah. along those lines, Nefarious admits that he had a journey of his own uh, to go uh, to go on in in terms of figuring out the tricks the trick to success uh, success as he saw it because he he hates mankind absolutely hates mm -hmm. them but the trick to defeating them was ultimately realizing 
he they had way more in common with him than he cared to admit and mm-hmm. he had to swallow it down and you make that point by saying this quote your desire and by this he's talking to mankind mm-hmm. your desire for adulation and recognition rivals even our own expand on that see what you're going to find and I, i'm not going to reveal it now when we get to the end of the book nefarious will tell you what hell's true motivation is for mankind and why they hate us okay um but what they what they recognized ultimately is that they were more successful than they even thought in the garden remember i the prophet isaiah says about lucifer that he looks at god and says hey i, I want to be like the most high I, i'll be like you okay and that's how he describes his fall right when lucifer comes to adam and eve in the garden he uses very very similar language in order to tempt them into fall right hey mm-hmm. you can be like god you can know what he knows right he's holding back on you and that they still looked hell still looked at mankind being made in the image of god and assumed that that hell underestimated the full impact of sin that we would be made in the image of god we would still carry that spark of divinity that mago, that, that imago day but that it is largely it, it's fl- it's a flickering it's a spark it's what a spark is a flickering light it's not fully a flame the, the bulb is not on right and that they had to recognize you know we're letting our hatred for mankind overshadow the fact that you're a lot more like us than we ever really thought because we fell from the exact same temptable premise that we can be as powerful as God. We can know what God knows. And that that you falling for that premise drew you a lot closer to us down here in hell and made you, even though you're made in his image, you behave and perform as if you are made in ours. And you are much, you are nearer to demon to thee than we ever anticipated. And we had to swallow down here in hell. We had to swallow our revulsion for you, meatbags made in his image, because it was strategically getting in the way of our own effectiveness. And we, had to, we were projecting. We had to stop looking at you, um, and I, don't, I almost spoiled it, why they, why they hate us so much. I'm not going to do that yet. We, but we had to stop looking at you that way and see you for who you really are, which is you're some meatbags after our own heart. And so once we started pl- stopped playing against you, but started leaning into you. That is what Nefarious yep. says. That's when, that's when the worm turned. That's when old Mo changed sides and he started uh, moving in our direction. Considering I, I just until this very moment, I wasn't going to p- move forward with this next um, connecting of the dots. But after what we just talked about with polling, you talk about how Nefarious telling mankind this because. The writing is on the wall. Well, that this was all before 2020. Mm-hmm. Now, we all believed in various revival or bust. We said that before 2020. Mm-hmm. I often said, listen, a culture that devle- believes in transgenderism is, is gone mm-hmm. in many respects. Mm-hmm. But now here we are in 2020. And does it, is, is that 
perhaps how something like no one can accurately read what's really going on is because the writing is so on the wall that yeah. there's no way to measure these points. It's purely spiritual. Yes. And I think that ties to the conversation we were just having. Yeah, about that's the my models. point. Yeah. Okay. Um, if if we were in another era, I would I would go further than just saying the models are wrong. I mean, I'd be like putting money down on Trump to win the election. But this this is the models are wrong. The models are well, I shouldn't say, they're bad. The models are mm-hmm. bad. I, it doesn't necessarily mean they won't guess who wins the election though, because there is another option here and it's what glenn begg asked me when i was on a show this morning that the country's just gone yes and if that's the case then the symmetrical analysis is doesn't matter like there wasn't any symmetry to the mob outside of lot's house it was just give me what i want it was just driven by wanton lust desire emotion with no restraint right with with no plumb line framework boundary and in those situations, there's aren't you don't have models for that. You survive, right? And if that's that is that's that's one way for the models that don't make sense to make sense, which is the country's just gone. That's a possibility. Yeah. Still, still doesn't make their math any the the, no. the assumptions of their models any less no. crappy. That's still all true. But doesn't it speak to why the models are so crappy? You know, years ago in my sports talk radio career, when I when I was really close to Iowa State athletics, the uh, the former athletic director at Iowa State, I was buddies with him, too. And Iowa State was hiring a basketball coach. And the process was just all over the place. Guy had never done it before. And it's it was also in an odd time, you know. They had the fire, Larry Eustachy, for the in the you know for the photos of sure. And and it was it was just not the time you normally hire a coach, so it was tough anyway. And and he's an amateur at this. He was holding meetings in Des Moines to interview candidates, either virtually or uh, in person. When these meetings were done, he would drive to my home in Urbandale, Iowa, where I lived at the time, and literally give me the rundown of what was going on in these meetings, okay? So I knew everybody they were talking to and everything, and I would just report the scoop of what, I can't have a better source than the guy that's doing the hiring, right? He's sitting on my couch in my home on Madison Avenue in Urbandale telling me, we would just talk to Dana Altman at Creighton, and here's what he told me. He's just telling me this, okay? I would then go and report it with my source, the next day, the story's totally different. I would then report that. Well, after three days of this, people were coming to me and saying, hey, your reporting is a scam. There's no way this thing can be this, except I couldn't tell them that I was accurately portraying how messed up the yeah. Iowa State basketball coaching search process was under Bruce Vandevelde. I couldn't, I couldn't tell them that, okay? So I kind of just had to grin down my chest and take heat for looking like I'm, you know, uh, my head's on a swivel. I'm just making stuff up whole cloth. Some of you have asked me on the, could the polls be factoring in mail and voter fraud? Yeah. I've said that that could be a factor. They haven't said that, but they could be saying that the other option is what you just said, that the country's just gone. And so all symmetry, all symmetries are off the table now. And the asymmetries in these models are accurately reflecting the uh, psychosis within the country. 
That is possible, but we won't know the answer to that until we actually have Which the election. Which basically means on nine out of 10 issues, individual issues, people would say they'd vote on something that Trump supports or yep. advocates for. Yep. But if you had it, they would also say I'm voting for Joe Biden. It's yes. something along those yep. lines. Yep. But there's no way to forecast yeah. something like that. Right. And the other problem with that, too, is remember Trump's approval rating throughout his presidency has been 87 percent. If it was 75 percent, well, we would have that trend the whole way going in. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So, but yeah, that that nefarious has won, and so nothing makes sense because hell is is you know they're agents of chaos. That's an option. You bet. Well, speaking of twenty twenty, another line that speaks to it exactly. We just had this news about uh, Gretchen Whitmer, Whitmer yeah. and uh, a potential coup there. We, we just last night in Milwaukee, Wauwatosa, another uh, burning down uh, the house there. Uh, you talk about, I'm paraphrasing here, but how simple people, uh, what his great successes, one of Nefarious's great successes throughout history is turning, you use the word, simple people, it, turning them into symbols of, quote, debauchery and butchery. I mean, my goodness, we have mo- Antifa mobs. Yeah, I didn't in know this, what an Antifa was yeah, in 2015 when I wrote this. In the yeah. street. And, and again, a lot of these people, we know they were raised... With nary a care in the world compared to all of human history, upper mm-hmm. middle class homes, got college education. Most Antifa kids are college so, educated, white, upper middle so class. So we can define yeah. simple any number of ways, but I'll talk, you know, simple just from like, you got a decent life. What do you have to complain about? And you are out there slitting throats mm-hmm. on the ball, man. That, that's a trophy to hell. Um, listen, hell, hell, I think will take satisfaction in carnage and chaos any way they can get it, right? But if it comes because, if carnage and chaos comes because there's, it's one thing for it to come because, hey, let's embrace Marx because bread is $10 um, you know, a loaf in St. Petersburg Square. You know what I'm saying? Yes, desperation. Yeah, or or let, let's embrace let's in, let's embrace the fascists in Italy um, because of you know what's happened to our fledgling democracy, or the 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 socialist fascist nationalist socialist fascists uh, in in Nazi Germany because the Weimar Republic was one of the worst examples of representative democracy in human history. Right, something right. like that. Hell will take the W any way it can get it. But what Nefarious is particularly satisfied by is that he was able to flip this country without any of those things happening. I mean, <laughs> 2% of the world, I think it is, lives above what is the poverty line in the United States of America. 2% of the rest of the world, I think, lives above the poverty line here in the U.S. I mean, Nefarious takes great pride in the fact that and and he views his uh, he views one of his contemporaries in hell who spawned the French Revolution as kind of a competitive rival, right? And so, what could you do to get people? Hey, it's one thing to get people to turn on a a corrupt aristocracy in France, but what if we got people just to turn on their own self government and like the corruption was themselves? And even despite that, they still were the freest, most prosperous people on earth that the earth has ever known. And they just look their own reflection as a gift horse in the mouth and say, screw that, man. I hate this racist, oppressive hellhole. And what that was Nefarious's attempt to top his competitive rival in hell was to get America to turn on itself, despite it having all of the freedom and equality 
that nations for centuries have strove for and never achieved. Oh, which is uh, how you close the chapter and how I was going to close with you. You mentioned that uh, the, the, the checks and balances within this country are protecting you against your own worst desires are like nothing ever before. Uh, it was going to be a tough sell, but then he realized, I have to turn your greatest strength against you. Mm-hmm. And he knew he did, which is why he wrote the book. Yeah. And we'll get into that as we get into the ensuing chapters. Correct. But those greatest, the, and, and how he did this on an individual basis, but holistically, he turned our institutions against us. Those institutions that, that installed those checks and balances and enforced them. He just turned them against us. I mean, look at the vice presidential debate last night. I, I mean, it... it <laughs> If, if, if this was a debate between the founding generations of the country and somebody said I'm just going to stack the Supreme Court, I mean, that guy would have walked out of there and been tarred and feathered, if not hung, as a traitor. We're now like literally legitimately debating it as a talking point in our era because our institutions that were supposed to protect us from ourselves and each other have now turned on us. And we now use them against one another. And we use them against ourselves. That's what Nefarious is talking about. Ted Cruz is scheduled to join us here when we come back. Stay tuned. Well, I don't think he needs much of uh, our help uh, pushing this one because it's already debuted pretty high on the bestseller list. It's the brand new book from Texas Senator Ted Cruz called One Vote Away, How a Single Supreme Court Seat Can Change History. And it's obviously, guys, this book was written months and months ago, and it just happened to come out at about the time that Ruth Bader Ginsburg passed away. And now the fight to confirm her successor with Amy Coney Barrett. Uh, is underway. And the author, uh, Texas Senator Ted Cruz, joins us here today on Blaze TV radio and podcast. Ted, good to see you, brother, again. How are you? Steve, great to be with you. How you doing? Uh, I could be a little better, but I could be a lot worse. You know how it goes. So before we get to the book, let's get to what happened last night. Uh, I, I thought it was one of the most dominant performances on a, on a national debate stage by a Republican I've ever seen, particularly once the debate pivoted to the economy. And then yeah. from that point on, for the final hour or so, I man, I just, and you know me well enough to know, if he didn't do good, I'd be like, so yeah. t- Ted, what, I'd tell you, I thought it was the JV versus the varsity last night. I mean, I thought he dismantled her and the whole message of the Biden campaign is, hey, we're the soft landing spot. We're not leftists. You suburban women who don't like Trump's mean tweets, you can feel safe voting for us. We won't turn you over to the Antifa crowd, you know, uh, and, and her job was to reassure those voters that she can step in for a guy that probably has dementia and she she did not do that last night. In fact, if anything, I think Mike Pence, his stock went way up last night. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I agree with you. I, I think the vice president did a terrific job. I think he was calm. He was cool. He was collected. I, I think he, he debated on substance, which is what we needed to do. Um, the Democrats want to run away from substance. They don't actually want to engage. I, th- I think uh, Pence had very strong moments. The contrast on China was really stark, um, and, and I think Pence did very well. I think Kamala did very poorly. Um, I, th- I think packing the court, uh, watching Kamala run screaming away from packing the court, and I, and, I, and I think 
the vice president did a really good job of pressing that and pressing that and pressing that and making clear just how radical they are. And, and not only on substance was there a sharp difference, but I think there was a sharp difference in style and tone. Uh, in, in, in that Mike was, he was calm, he was measured. Um, Kamala is a talented politician. She, she can be emotional. She had some good moments and, and, and I don't think as conservatives, we should, should ignore that she had some moments that probably connected with people. But I think a lot of those moments felt very scripted. A lot of those kind of two minute riffs, it, it seemed pretty clear she had practiced them for some time. And, and in particular, the exchanges she had with him where she would say, I'm speaking, I'm speaking. Mm-hmm. It was clear she had practiced that for dealing with something like happened in the first debate where, where President Trump interrupted frequently. And I think had Pence been behaving as Trump did, constantly interrupting, that would have been a very strong moment for Kamala. As it was, it came across as really scripted and disproportionate because Pence is a pretty mild-mannered guy, and so he's sitting there kind of – she's lecturing him like like an angry first-grade teacher. And, and it looked I, – I, I think it was jarring the dissonance because she was – she was not responding in any way proportionate to to what he was saying, and she wouldn't respond to any of the substance of what he'd say. I think last night proved something I have said for years, brother, which is that when elections are about issues, Republicans win, and yes. when they are about personalities, Democrats win. And there's, yes. there's, there's this misnomer that Trump is the first Republican to win on personality. It is not true. When when Trump was running in the primary, he had the same personality. When he was talking about Jiner, nobody cared, Ted. It's when he glommed on to the immigration issue, something now I care about, now yeah. I care. In the, yeah. in the general election, it wasn't until he looked you in the eye in the debate, in the final debate, and said, I'm going to appoint justices that overturn Roe. And then on election day, that was the number two issue in the exit poll, and he won those voters by 15 points. What was missing in the last debate, it wasn't, it wasn't whether you like the histrionics or his anti We've been. Let's be honest. You and I have thought this guy was in the last five years was probably dead twenty times with his histrionics, and we were wrong all twenty times, brother. Right? Okay. That's not the issue. It's that the they got in the way of the issues. He never talked about. Hey, you got when you were president. You didn't know if it was ISIS or ISIL. We we now pronounce them DOA, dead on arrival. We killed all those people. He didn't talk about any of his accomplishments. It was just all histrionics, not pointing to any issues. Issues were missing from that last debate. And I think if there ever is another debate between those two, he needs to get back on issues because that's the conversation Joe Biden doesn't want to have. And you saw Kamala Harris didn't want to have that last night. Well, I think you're exactly right. And one of the things, one of the lessons we can take from both of these debates is, you know, the Democrats embrace these far left issues, but they know the American people don't actually agree with them. Mm-hmm. And, and so they're not willing. They don't want to actually defend them in the 30 days before an election. So on packing the court, Biden and Harris run screaming to the hills, pretending they're not going to do it when when their left wing base knows that's exactly what they would do on fracking. I mean, it's the, the backwards gymnastics of pretending they're not going to try to back uh, ban fracking when both Joe Biden and Kamala Harris have repeatedly promised they would do exactly that. I think that reveals a lot. And, and, you know, you mentioned the Supreme Court. 
Uh, I believe that was the most important issue in 2016, that it's the most important issue in 2018. You know, we're we're talking about my book here, One Vote Away. Uh, the, the book opens, the opening scene in the book uh, is the day Justice Scalia died in February of 2016. And, and that day was the day of the South Carolina presidential debate. And, and, and I was uh, in a conference room in South Carolina preparing for the debate that day. And, and my body guy, Bruce, who you, who you know from the trail, Bruce mm-hmm. came knocking on the door and said, hey, have you heard, heard about the Scalia thing? And I'm like, what, what Scalia thing? And, and Bruce said, well, he died. And, and it turned out the West Texas sheriff who had discovered the body uh, called me and called John Corn. And this is a couple of hours before the news broke to let us know that he had just discovered Justice Scalia dead, dead in his bed in the, in the hunting lodge he was at. And so our entire debate prep session was scrapped and we spent the entire time talking about what to do on this issue. And the instant the news break I broke, I came out unequivocally and said, the Senate needs to keep this seat vacant and let the people decide this is the most important issue in the election. And within minutes, Mitch McConnell and Chuck Grassley and other Senate Republicans echoed that. And one of the interesting things I talk about in the book is subsequently Mitch McConnell's former chief of staff told the New York Times one of the reasons Mitch took the position that we're not going to fill this vacancy is he knew that that evening at the debate that I would call unequivocally for that. And Mitch didn't want to be seen as following my lead in that regard. (laughs) So he came out and did it to begin with. And I'm like, great, hallelujah, whatever the cause, the outcome is right. And, and I believe had Justice Scalia not passed away, Hillary Clinton would, would be president today. And so, so you want to talk about ideas having consequences when it comes to the Constitution and Bill of Rights, the American people want constitutionalists on the court. You and I both know the, the 56 men that pledged their lives, fortunes and sacred honors and then the generations that took up that mantle after them never, ever intended that our freedoms and liberties would come down to five, four votes of unelected judges at the U.S. Supreme Court. In fact, judicial corruption overreach was one of the main grievances they repeatedly mentioned in their own divorce from the, the crown. But yet, here, unfortunately, we are. And that's just the reality. No matter how much people like me have railed against it, or you have, it's, it is where we are. So... Give us an idea. What are we one vote away from? Well, sure. The, the, the way the book is structured, each chapter addresses a different constitutional liberty. So there's a chapter on free speech. There's a chapter on religious liberty. There's a chapter on the Second Amendment. There's a chapter on democracy and elections. And, and the book is not academic or abstract or theoretical. It's practical in real world. What, 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 what I do is take the reader behind the scenes, behind the curtain, into the court to understand what's really going on at the court. Who are the justices and and how do these issues impact me and my family? And and the way we do it is that I tell war stories uh, focused on the big landmark decisions of the court, many of which I personally helped litigate. And, And what is striking in issue after issue after issue Many of the big landmark decisions are 5-4. We're one vote away from losing our fundamental freedoms. You and I, both after the passing of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, beyond just a partisan bent, 
Um, I made the point, uh, you were one of the few elected officials I saw make this same point. We, we cannot go into an election that is likely going to end up somewhere in the courts with yep. a deadlocked Supreme Court because if that means previous appellate decisions stand. So in one district, do these votes count? And in the next district, do they count? That is, that's, you, want, you think the civil unrest is bad now. Take the Florida recount and times it by 10 million when we liked each other a lot better back then and then do it all over the country, right? Do it in Arizona, then do it in Michigan, do it in Wisconsin, do it in Nevada. We don't want to see that. And, and I think that is a key point. So what happens if this election goes to the court? Because there's this notion, Ted, that John Roberts has moved left. I don't think that's what it is. I think John, and you know him, I don't. But I, I think John Roberts views himself as the guy that's holding the extremes of both sides back and putting his thumb on the scale and, and you know, to try to level the, the playing field from a decorum stance. That's why he's with us on religious liberty and against us on immigration. Whenever he sees one side's, what he views as extremists, move offensively on an issue, he like rallies to stop them from getting their way because he thinks he's holding back the horde when I think he's actually incentivizing the dissension all the more by doing this. If I'm right, then what does he do in this scenario when this election ends up in his lap here in a couple of months? Sure. Let, let, let me take it one at a time. Let me address sort of litigation and uncertainty in the election, and then let me address John Roberts in particular. Uh, on the first piece, there, there's, a, there's a whole chapter in the book that is on democracy and elections, and it focuses on Bush versus Gore. So, so I was part of the legal team that represented George W. Bush in Bush versus Gore. I was at the time, I was a young lawyer. Um, I was I was working on the presidential campaign, so I was living down in Austin. That's actually where Heidi and I met. We were in cubicles 20 or 30 feet apart uh, down at the campaign headquarters. And if you remember what happened on election night, George W. Bush won, but the results in Florida were very close. And so Al Gore sent in a team of lawyers and they filed multiple lawsuits challenging the outcome in Florida. And, and what they did, and this is true what anyone does when you're engaged in a recount, is they were trying to throw out the votes that were counted for George W. Bush, and they were trying to find new votes for Al Gore. And, and so I, I flew to Florida. I was in Tallahassee for the entire recount. And, you know, it's interesting. Some of the, the Hollywood portrayals now portray it as organized and strategic, and, and all of that's nonsense. It, it was utter and complete chaos. Uh, the first six days there, I slept seven hours. And, and I remember in the war room, we had a whiteboard on the wall. We had a chart of seven different cases, seven different lawsuits that were pending, any one of which could, could cost the presidency of the United States. Hmm. And, and the case went twice to the U.S. Supreme Court. So the first time it went to the Supreme Court, we won unanimously, nine to nothing. Supreme Court agreed that the Florida Supreme Court, which is a partisan Democratic court, got it wrong. They vacated it, sent it back. The second time it went to the Supreme Court on the question of remedy, the final result, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled for us five to four. By a vote of five to four, they said, OK, the elections have been counted. The ballots have been counted four times. Every single time George W. Bush has won, enough is enough. Under the law, this election is done. It's over. We had 36 days of uncertainty, of chaos, of, of the entire country and the entire world not knowing who the next president would be. If you fast forward to now, I think there is a very real possibility this election will be substantially worse than Bush versus Gore. That instead of just one state, Florida, as you suggested, we could see litigation in multiple states. Mm -hmm. 
And, and by the way, we could see litigation from Joe Biden. We could see litigation sure. from Donald Trump. We could see both of them suing where one wins one state, one wins the other. And they're both suing, trying to overturn those results. And one enormous challenge and one of the reasons why we've got to get Judge Barrett's confirmation completed before Election Day is if that seat is vacant and there are just eight justices in the court, it's possible for the court to divide 4-4. And an evenly divided court has no authority to decide anything. And so, for example, let's suppose Nevada I've goes- I've got about 90 seconds, by the way. So I just want to let you know. Go ahead. If the court of courts of appeals are conflicted, a divided Supreme Court can't resolve it. We could see months of chaos. On John Roberts, I'll just say this. I think John Roberts despises Donald Trump. On a personal level, and I've been friends with John Roberts 25 years. Um, I think John Roberts has become the new Sandra Day O'Connor. I actually talked quite a bit about John Roberts and Gorsuch and Kavanaugh uh, in the book One Vote Away. But but I think it, it, it is it's hard to find two people more personally antithetical than John Roberts and Donald Trump. And so I don't want to see a 4-4 court. Uh, resolving the chaos of elections. I, I think that's not fair to the country. We need a functioning nine justice Supreme Court that can actually resolve it according to the law and according to the Constitution. Good to see you, brother. Good luck with the book, but I saw the sales last week. I don't think you're going to need it. I think you got this one. I think you're good on your own. All right. Go on Amazon, Barnes & Noble. We actually made number one bestseller in the country on Amazon, but the book is, I think, interesting, accessible, and really useful as you're talking with friends and family and, and addressing the all the chaos that's going on. Thanks for joining us, Ted. Congrats on the success with the book. All right. We'll see you later. Take care. Appreciate it. All right. We got about a minute here. You guys, see? thoughts on that conversation? Well, just to close there, in, uh, compared to what everything else we've been talking about, how is that book a number one bestseller and Biden winning by 11 points? It's so, another data yeah, point. You have to understand there's like 2 million books for sale yeah. on Amazon. Okay, I know. So Ted Cruz has the number one book. It's harder to be number one on Amazon than on the New York Times bestseller list. So Ted Cruz is the number one book on Amazon. The NBA's television ratings are the worst in the history of their league, and it's just because of politics. And yet Joe Biden's going to win the election by 12 points. Right? That's what you're asking me, right? Yeah. Does that make sense? No. No, it doesn't. Aaron? What a confusing time to be alive. Um, it's just amid the frustration of just day-to-day -day crap that all of us, to varying degrees, have to put up with COVID. I hear stories about it every day trying to deduce whatever the heck the polling industry is. I don't know how people who don't have some sort of faith in God make it through a world and try to navigate it hmm. through a world like this. And today is another example of that. Well said, both of you. We're going to stick around and do the overtime for Blaze TV subscribers. For the rest of y'all, we're gone tomorrow. So have a great weekend. We'll see you again on Monday, John 317. This is Steve Dace on the Blaze Radio Network.